0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
1: Wow. Ahora dime
2: sobre tu novia nueva.
3: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Sabes lo que dije. You know what I said.
2: Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to
4: Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
3: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's.
2: He was described as a peace-loving man, a scientist, a man who had had absolutely no power over the army. This was all fabricated, this is all completely untrue. And this post-war myth continues in many places to today.
1: That was Francis Pike talking about the Japanese Emperor Hirohito's role in the Second World War.
3: The black community in this country stood firm and said we have fought for this country, we have laid down our lives. For this country, we are here to stay.
1: And that was Stephen Bourne on Britain's black community at the time of the First World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com. Forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo, and Zinio. Look out for us in your App Store or Newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of August 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This Sunday, the 9th of August, we'll see the 70th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, one of the final acts of the Allied war against Japan. Here in Britain, the Pacific war is often overlooked in favour of events in Europe, even though British forces did, of course, participate in the Far East. Historian Francis Pike is seeking to redress that balance with his book, Hirohito's War, The Pacific War 1941-1945. to 1945. And he spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton.
4: What arguments can we make for the fact that the Second World War started uh, in July 1937 in China rather than in Poland?
2: Well, if, if you look at the, the reasons as to why America came into, into the war, and after all, it, well, there wouldn't have been a world war unless America had had actually participated in, in Europe, uh, and the reason they came into the war was was because of their insistence that Japan withdraw from China, um, and and the the Chinese the, sorry the Japanese occupation of, of China started in in, in 1937, um, and after increasing pressure. Uh, Eventually, the the Americans uh, uh, imposed a financial freeze on on Japan uh, that forced, first of all, it 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 uh, cut off all oil imports into Japan, and they were eighty five to eighty five percent dependence on American oil imports, and the result was that Japan had nowhere to go. Either it had to withdraw from China uh, after suffering about a million casualties over four years or it or it or it had to to fight america it was it was it was a pretty bleak choice for the for the for the japanese so if it hadn't been for the japanese invasion of china in 1937 there really wouldn't have been grounds for America to come into the war against against Germany.
4: I think one of the things that's fascinating about the book is taking a non-Western perspective on events that we usually see from only one point of view. What are the main things that we can learn from taking a Japanese perspective?
2: Well, I think one of one of the main reasons to learn is we tend to see the Second World War through the telescope of Europe, which meaning that that we see the europe as being the major part of the the conflict and asia being a a, a little addition if you look at most histories of the of world war 2 japan gets about 10 to 20 10 to 20% of the coverage of uh, of, of a book uh, covers covers the asian war whereas in fact in scale it was at least 50-50 uh, compared to, compared to europe uh, and and so by looking at it from a Japanese or Asian point of view, one can see that actually it was a, it was as big a war as the war in Europe, and as consequential in terms of the 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 outcomes and the effects on the, on the region.
4: Um, what new impression did you get of Hirohito?
2: Well, some some historians have argued that he was the main driver of military expansion in in Asia. I. I see no evidence of, of that. Um, in fact, I think he was extremely fearful of of Japan going to war. However, um, when Japan made its conquest, he was pretty happy post the event. Uh, before the event, he was he was extremely cautious. Um, but uh, you know, when the great victories were achieved, he was on his white charger, leading victory parades in front of the Imperial Palace. And I think he uh, believed in the Japanese Empire every bit as much as, as his, his, uh, his, his army. Um, but uh, he, was, he was just more cautious simply because he had more to lose, including, as he thought, his head.
4: Mm, yes. Um, I mean, how far can we associate him with specific decisions? Or is that kind of a pointless task?
2: It's the this decision making in Japan tends to be much more collective um, than it is in, in, in the West. And so it's much harder to identify individual decisions. But on, on important occasions, when things were very important, he did intervene. He was, um, by the definition of the, the Meiji constitution, he was um, uh, an, an absolute monarch. Now, by convention, he operated within, within the bounds of a, a constitutional framework. Uh, but on three very important occasions, he did intervene unilaterally and overruled his, his generals and, and advisors, which means that he could, if he, if, if he had wanted to, he could have intervened to, to try to stop the army um, in, in its aggressive expansion. But he chose not to.
4: So, I mean, in, in terms of his personality, what did you make of that? His character.
2: I think he was not particularly intelligent. I think he was uh, relatively weak. Uh, he vacillated, um, and he was not. He was not the the strong leader type that uh, that, for example, Adolf Hitler was. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that uh, his role as a leader was not important. It was important symbolically um and most uh, japanese soldiers went to their deaths uh, you know, screaming long live the emperor
4: mm. so he was this important figurehead as as much as anything else
2: well he he was a god and and he embodied the spirit of the nation and as such he was the essential component he was the reason for which everybody was fighting
4: is it fair to say that we can see pearl harbor as guaranteeing a japanese defeat
2: no it's it's I, I think most historians say that American victory was inevitable, and they say that because the American economy was so much bigger. It was, some, it was some, something like seven times bigger than the Japanese economy uh, at, the, at the start of the war. However, in history, there have been many occasions when very small nations have defeated very large nations. And the other thing I would I point to is, is that uh, nowhere in history has any country ever taken an army 1.5 million troops 5000 miles across an ocean to defeat and conquer another nation this was an extraordinary achievement and nobody could say that this was an inevitable uh, thing that that america would 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 achieve victory in this in in this war so um the attack on the attack on Pearl Harbor was it did not necessarily mean that, that Japan would, would, would lose the war. Um, in, in fact, it, it could, in my view, it could, it could easily have been been won by by Japan if America had not shown an extraordinary will and determination to fight. Mm.
4: And how important was Japan's ability to produce military
2: hardware? The problem for Japan at the the start of the the war with America was that the war in China, which had gone on from nineteen thirty seven to nineteen forty one, had not produced the outright victory which the Japanese army had believed it would it would achieve. The result was that the the Japanese economy was already running at a hundred percent of capacity in nineteen forty one, whereas. By contrast, the, the American economy was, was, was running at 70% capacity. So it had much more scope for increasing armaments production and so on. So the, the Japanese did have a problem in, in, in terms of being able to scale up and match America um, in, in its, indu- its industrial military output.
4: Um, are there any uh, kind of characters, any per- you know people in this book who you think have been unsung or underrecognized?
2: Yes, I, th- I think always in in wars, w- the losing side tends to uh, tends to forget its generals, and I think the, the Pacific War is no is no exception to this. I mean, I think the, one of the finest generals of the war was General Yamashita, who. Uh, defeated the British in in Malaya and Singapore, in a campaign which was absolutely superb, uh, and I think he he was genuinely a a great general, and I think that is often often for, forgotten. Um, the other um, people who tend to be forgotten in this in in this war are uh, the the junior uh, American generals who worked for or worked under General MacArthur. Um, in the Pacific War, General MacArthur controlled media completely. His communiques uh, would only talk ab- about himself, and he really wrote out his his, gen- his, his his own generals. And that was because he was he was a complete egomaniac and fantasist. And generals like General Eichelberger, General Kruger, had they been operating in the European Theatre, they would be comparable with. With General Patton or General Omar Bradley, names that we're very familiar with, because uh, you know there they wasn't the same degree of control by by MacArthur, but MacArthur uh, completely dominated the 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 media the media, and um, these generals who were quite super superb generals are, are really written out of the story. Mm,
4: that's really interesting. Um, what was your biggest challenge in writing this book?
2: I think the big, the biggest challenge was to get my head around the geography. I the. Mean, it sounds strange, but I mean I lived in Japan, I lived in China, uh, I lived in India. Um but the the region of the South Pacific is geographically a mystery unless you really embrace and understand the geography. It's very difficult to understand the progress of the of of, of the war. So that was probably the most difficult thing to to comprehend and also the the extraordinary complex logistical structure required required to 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 fight this war it was a much more difficult and complex uh, war than the, the the war the war in europe mm.
4: and it's such a vast subject was it a challenge fitting that into a single volume as well
2: yes i mean sometimes it's easy to say it would've been easier to to write a a, a 2 or 3000 page book than a than a 1000 page book page book um, it, it is a huge subject and it's one of the reasons why since world war ii since the pacific war there have only been three attempts at writing a comprehensive one volume history and all the the the, the last of, of these books is over 30 years ago and and all three of them are somewhat lacking in my view in, in 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 structure and also balance um and I think that's an important that's an important thing to understand is that the 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 war in the Pacific is not just about uh, Japan and America. It's also about uh, China, which was the font of the war after all. It's about the British. It's about the Dutch. Uh, it's about the French, uh, and it's about the Australians. And people forget uh, that the Australians played a very significant part in the turnaround battles of the of the pacific war and again because of macarthur they were they were largely written out of the story the story
4: talking about the australian side of things are there any particular episodes that we should focus on much more than we have done
2: yes i mean i I think the the turnaround battles of the kokoda trail um are extraordinarily interesting and in in some other histories of the pacific they're really not mentioned at all um and yet, these were these were the 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 key the key turn turn, turn battles, and they're extraordinary battles because they were fought over a mountain range over the course of a number of months, uh, and the hardship that the Australian troops had to endure was was really quite was quite quite extraordinary, and in fact, I th- I would say the Australians fought in some of the most difficult campaigns of the war simply because they had to fight at a time when when america didn't have or the allies didn't have complete air control or control at sea either so they they were relatively unsupported uh and they were they were not supported well by uh, a logistical operation which which again general macarthur completely uh, screwed up frankly frankly um in a in in terrain which macarthur just did not understand. He and he never visited the front. He never had any understanding of the conditions in which the Australian troops were fighting.
4: Um, and turning to the Chinese side of the story, are there any individuals there who emerge as particular heroes or particularly strong characters?
2: Well, I I, I think Chiang Kai Shek, the 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 leader of the Kuomintang, um, is is given is given a pretty bad press. Uh, and that really results in the post war period from the feeling that um he and his armies didn't fight well, this is really not true. Um, they had fought Japan to a standstill from nineteen thirty seven to nineteen forty one um and by keep by staying in the field and keeping uh, the Japanese occupied, they, they, they occupied 1.5 million Japanese soldiers in China uh, who could otherwise have been fighting in, uh, you know, in the, in the islands and the, in the Pacific against, against the, the, the Americans and Australians. So they, they played a vital role in tying, tying down uh, the Japanese army. And they literally were not capable of launching, uh, uh, any aggressive campaigns, uh, attacking campaigns, because they literally did not have the armaments and the logistics and the supplies to to support to support that. Their economy was had effectively collapsed. Uh, but in spite of that, they they stayed in the fie- in the in the field and fought defensively, and that's as much as could have been expected of them. Now, I think the the post-war criticisms of of Chiang Kai-shek. That he stored armaments um, uh, and wasn't prepared to fight are, are completely baseless.
4: We ran a feature in a recent issue about the use of the A bomb. Where do you stand on on that?
2: Well, I, I think no no president of any persuasion could could not have used the atom bomb. Um, if you look at the campaigns leading up leading up to the prospective campaign to invade japan the campaigns on iwo jima and okinawa it became clear that japanese defense was becoming um, ever stronger as as america approached the main japanese islands in fact almost 30% of uh, all american casualties in the pacific war happened in the last 3 months of the of the war in the campaigns in iwo jima and ok- okinawa and the, as a result of that, the, both the uh, the the um, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, and the, the the State the State Department uh, and the Secretary for Defence produced estimates which showed that somewhere in the region of between 250,000 and 800,000 Americans would have been killed had they attempted the the conquest, the conventional conquest of Japan by 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 land. The atom bomb um, gave the president the means to uh, to end the war without that enormous cost in American lives, and the the forecasts for the number of American dead in the conventional conquest of Japan uh, were were more than double. The number of, of American soldiers killed in in Europe. Um, so no president, given this this the availability of this weapon, no president could not have used it. And how could he have gone back to his own people and said, "I've got a weapon that I could have ended the war with, and didn't use it and didn't use it because I thought it was immoral." The American electorate would not have stood for it. It would have been impossible for. For, for Truman to have done anything else,
4: so you think, in some sense, there's little doubt that he would have ever have not uh, used it. I,
2: I don't think it was. I don't think it was ever in question. Um, you've got to remember that our moral attitudes towards the the, the bomb are, are, are built in the post-war knowledge of radiation sickness and the horrors and of, of that and so on. At at the time, the atom bomb was was a. A big killing weapon, but it it didn't have the moral connotations that we now we now associate it with, and and um, so, so so there just wasn't a there was no moral debate about this. It was just another weapon, uh, but one that had the possibility to end the war. And in terms of horror, in my view, if you look if you read my book, you I think you will see the great Tokyo air raid, which was. A conventional bombing attack using incendiary bombs was, in many ways, much more horrific than the than the attack on Hiroshima, and also killed uh, far more people. I mean, a hundred thousand people died in one night in the Great Tokyo Air Raid uh, of of March nineteen forty five, compared to the sixty thousand who died who died at Hiroshima.
4: Are there any other aspects of this uh, conflict that have been shaped by our post war change in attitudes? Do you think?
2: Y- yes, I. I mean, I. I think one, one, of the, one of the issues has been the issue of the morality of bombing civilian targets. Um, and, of course, in the post-war period, we've had uh, uh, changes to the Hague Conventions, the Geneva Convention, um, that have, that have um, put limits on how you can use air power to, to win to win a war in a in a legal sense, um, and of course in the pre-war period there were really no such um, moral limits. The only limit was a Hague, Conve- was an Article Four from the Hague Convention, eighteen ninety nine, which which said you couldn't drop projectiles from balloons. Well, you know that that really had was. Um, was the only thing that had that had ever been part passed by 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 an, an international convention, so there were there were no moral limits to to bombing to bombing as it happened in 1939. But of course, we people take moral issues and they project them backwards, uh, which which a lot of people have done in the post-war period and have projected backwards a morality in 1939, which 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 just did not exist.
4: And on that same sort of point, do you think we should see Hirohito uh, uh kind of differently in, in light of the fact we shouldn't judge him based on modern standards, I suppose?
2: Well, the issue the issue of Hirohito is is, is slight is slightly different. Um in that in the post after the war there were war crimes trials. Now MacArthur judged uh, on the advice of, of his intelligence officer, Colonel Colonel Willoughby, he judged that he needed hirohito to maintain civilian order in japan uh, in my view that was an incorrect judgment Actually, the japanese were were really quite defeated and and accepting of the the the, the american occupation i don't think there, there would have been any civilian unrest had if, if hirohito had been removed but as a result of of this analysis by uh, by MacArthur, Hirohito was not put on trial, and he was given—he and his f- entire family were given a free pass as far as war crimes were concerned. Well, it's well known that, first of all, it's well known that members of his family were involved in in war in war crimes. Second, secondly, on the basis of the law used it at at um, the, the, the the Tokyo tribunals. Um, Hirohito should have been a a witness and B, he should have been on, on trial too, because as head of the army and as a man who had, who had the absolute power to stop the war happening, um, he would have had no defense. And I think he he should have been a class A, a criminal and he should have been, he should have been executed, uh, given that. That's what happened to the other, the other generals. So there was, a, there was an elaborate cover-up of uh, Hirohito's role. Um, he was dis- described as a peace-loving um, uh, man, a scientist, a man who had had absolutely no power over the army. This was all fabricated. This is all completely untrue. Uh, and this post-war myth continues in many places to today. And A lot of Japanese still still believe this, and a lot of people in the West still still, still believe it. Um, and my book is an attempt to partly is to to change this view of of Hirohito's role. I mean, he he may not have been the the uh, instigator of of the of the wars of of expansion by Japan's wars of expansion, but he was ultimately. Um, the leader of the, the head of the Japanese army and he was ultimately responsible and he should have been tried as such. Mm.
4: Um, what was the thing that surprised you most in the course of your
2: research? Um, I think although I'd heard about the scale uh, about Japanese atrocities during the Pacific War it was the scale of the atrocities which absolutely flabbergasted me. Um, i I don't really want to talk about some of the things that that they did because i find actually too unpleasant to talk about um but but it really it really did stagger me the 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 scale of the of the butchering the 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 cruelty um imposed by the japanese not just on captured soldiers but also on the on the civilian population Populations.
4: If you could um, change people's impressions of this period and this region as a result of reading this book, how would you like to change that?
2: Well, first of all, by reading the book. Um, but what I'd like people to, to take away from this is is the importance of the, the 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 war in the Pacific in terms of the history of the 20, the twentieth century. And not only the history of the 20th century, the history of the 21st century. Um, In a sense, we're we're going back to a a period which was familiar in 1850. You've got to remember, in the middle of the 19th century, China was by the world's biggest economy. We've lived, all of us, you, me, and all of our listeners have lived in a period in which uh, the West and Europe have been dominant players in world history. We're now moving back to a period. Where China and Asia will be vastly more significant economically and culturally than than the West, there is no question at all that there'll be a rebalancing of history over time towards looking at the Second World War as being more important in terms of what happened in in Asia than what happened in Europe and so that's I think what I would like people to get to get out of. Of, of reading this book is to get a sense of the importance of Asian history in the in the twentieth century in terms of defining what's happening now and what, what will happen over the next hundred years and what happened in the years um, in the years ahead for uh, our children and grandchildren.
1: That was Francis Pike. Hirohito's War: The Pacific War, nineteen forty one to nineteen forty five, is out now in both the UK and the US published by Bloomsbury. And if you'd like to read more about the war in the Pacific, then you may well be interested in our August issue, in which the cover feature debates the rights and wrongs of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Also in this month's magazine, we have articles on Tudor jousting, the murder of Thomas Beckett, witch trials and the aftermath of VE Day. You can get hold of our August issue now in all good news agents and digitally.
4: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Hola. Hello. This call is being translated.
1: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow.
2: Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
1: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh?
3: Tu sabes lo que dije. You
1: know what I said.
2: Language is no longer
4: a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
0: <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help
1: from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan.
0: Hiroshima residents are marking 70 years since the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city. A ceremony attended by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe will be held at Hiroshima's Memorial Park before thousands of lanterns are released on the city's Motoyasu River. On the sixth of August 1945, the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima that killed tens of thousands of people instantly and many more through the longer-term effects of radiation. Three days later, on the 9th of August, a second bomb targeting Nagasaki killed at least 50,000 people. Visit historyextra.com to read about the science behind the bombings, view pictures of the devastation, and debate whether the attacks were justified. In other news, ancient Egyptian treasures discovered underwater are to be exhibited for the first time. Found in the submerged ruins of the cities of Thonis Herculeon and Canopus, the treasures include a finely sculpted statue of a pharaoh and a golden-eyed depiction of the god Osiris, the Guardian reports. The cities sank beneath the waves in the 8th century AD, following cataclysmic natural disasters, including an earthquake and tidal waves. More than 290 artefacts will feature in an exhibition staged at the Arab World Institute in Paris, titled Osiris, Sunken Mysteries of Egypt. Meanwhile, new research suggests ancient Vikings settled in Greenland not for farming, as was previously thought, but for ivory. Scholars have long thought that Vikings flocked to Greenland to set up farms, even though the growing season is short and raising livestock is difficult. But according to Hakai magazine in Canada, archaeologist Tom McGovern is testing a new theory that Vikings settled in Greenland to provide European markets with luxury trade goods such as furs, hides and walrus tusk ivory. McGovern's research suggests walrus hunting, not farming, was the main source of prosperity for many of the estimated 3,000 Vikings who lived in Greenland. A document from 1327 analysed by Christian Keller of Oslo University showed that a load of walrus ivory, equivalent to 520 tusks, was enough to pay six years' worth of Greenland's taxes to their ruler, the King of Norway.
1: Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekends that take place in York and Malmesbury from the 25th to 27th of September and the 15th to 18th of October, respectively. We have a great range of speakers that includes Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Alison Weir, Tom Holland and Helen Castor. Tickets are on sale now, and you can get hold of them and find out more details at historyweekend.com. And a number of talks have already sold out, so do make sure to get your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. Our second interview this week is with Stephen Bourne a historian who specialises in black history. He's written a number of books on the black experience of the Second World War and more recently has turned his attention to the First World War with a book entitled Black Poppies. I paid a visit to him in London not long ago to find out more. So we're talking here about your book Black Poppies and just to clarify for our audience, are you talking here about solely black british people or are you also including black people from the british empire
3: it was my intention to primarily focus on black british people people born in this country because it's not generally known that black men from all over the, the country either in the seaports or in villages would join in british regiments but i i did include i did intend always to include some west indians and west africans from from across the british empire
1: i have thought some of our listeners would be interested to know that there were you know lots of black people in britain in the first world war era because you i suppose tend to think of the Windrush and afterwards so how many black people would there have been in britain do we know around 1914
3: it's a very good question but a very difficult one to answer because unlike america we did not include ethnicity on our census. So if you go to the 1911 census, which is just a few years prior to the start of the First World War, you cannot really, unless it actually says African or Trinidadian, but even then, a white colonial could be living in those places. But the census, the British census didn't allow for that. It didn't Include ethnicity, so it's almost impossible to come up with with numbers, and I wouldn't even like to, to guess. All I can say is that from the evidence that we have, there were substantial numbers of Black people, people of African descent, living in Britain, resident in Britain, when the First World War broke out.
1: And um where would they originally have come from? Would they have come from Africa, or they've come from British colonies in the Caribbean?
3: Oh, they would have come from across the Empire. My adopted Aunt Esther, for example, her father was a classic example of a a working-class Guyanese uh, merchant seaman. So he was on the ships, uh, as, as many black men from across the colonies, the African colonies, the West Indies, were. And some of them did decide to settle in our seaports in England and make their homes here. So they would have originated from the British Empire, because they saw themselves as British. They were British subjects.
1: And again, and this might be be hard to answer, but do you have an inkling of how many of these black people served in the First World War?
3: Again, no, because the the ethnicity was never really recorded. There are some examples of black mixed-race soldiers from Britain who joined British regiments, and it might say, in the language they used in those days, half-caste. And other, and other examples, we have no mention is made of their ethnicity. So I remember quite recently, a young black researcher came to me in great excitement and said, "I found hundreds and hundreds of of J- Jamaicans and and uh, in the art." I said, "But how do you know if they were black? Well, well, of course they're black if they're from Jamaica." And I said, "Well, no, because you had white British people." The, the colonials living in those places and living in on those in those islands in the Caribbean, unless it specifies it, you can't prove it. So again, it's very difficult to establish figures, true figures, in the armed services. But from the evidence that we've got, and the evidence that's come into light more and more from photographic evidence which I use in my talks, even after the book came out, after Black Poppies came out and people began to read it, they would send me, email me pictures of British regiments. There's one Welsh regiment with a black guy standing at the back. It's fascinating. So the evidence is still coming, coming through.
1: And so during the period of the First World War, how accepted would black people have been both sort of at home in Britain and in the armed forces?
3: Again, there's very little anecdotal evidence of, of how they would have been received. So I there's more anecdotal evidence of what happened in the Second World War. So one, I'm assuming that in the First World War, by and large, if you had a uniform on, then you were more likely to be accepted in the, by the British public, wherever you may go. But it was really after the war in 1919, that the returning white servicemen, not all of them, but some of them were very resentful of coming back to a country that they did not consider was fit for heroes. There was mass unemployment mm. and, the, and the black communities and black individuals in this country became the scapegoat. So in the summer of 1919, white servicemen, particularly in the seaports, where black men had married white women and had families and were, were, were establishing themselves in these communities, there was this terrible backlash. So it did turn very nasty. But the black community in this country um, stood firm and said, we have fought for this country, we have laid down our lives for this country, we are here to stay. And I really think that was a huge turning point in British history. It, it's Windrush 1948, which is always seen as the watershed, the landmark, the turning point. I don't think it was, and I think it was 1919.
1: Were there any of the, the black servicemen that you, you wrote about that particularly stood out for you?
3: One of the motivations for doing the book was that in Britain we have this thing of singling out, say, one black person mm. from history and forgetting that they have a context. So Mary Seacole, for for, for many years now, has been quite rightly um, singled out as an important black woman from Victorian times. But she wasn't the only black woman in Victorian times. But she exists in isolation, and this is what happened with was, has happened with Walter Tull. So Walter Tull, who's claimed to be the first black officer um in the first world war british born as well it was fascinating over the last sort of 10 15 years to see the attention being given to him more and more so there was books aimed at children that can be used in schools he's not officially on the school curriculum like the african americans dr martin luther king and and the others um but i want i said to my publisher i it's and I say it talks, I make people laugh. I say that Walter Tull is up there looking down saying, I wasn't the only black soldier in the First World War, the only black British soldier. There were others, you know, it's lonely up here, you know, try and find some more and talk about them. And that's what I endeavoured to do, was, was to give him a, a context in that way. Uh, so I wouldn't say that Walter Tull was particularly um, the most impressive to me because I knew about him. It was finding the stories of... Black soldiers like Frank Dove and Norman Manley, who became the prime minister for Jamaica much later, left a partially written uh, autobiography before he died. His wife told him to write it down, but he only got as far as, as far as I'm aware, he only got as far as the First World War. He was an Oxford, an Oxford student in 1914, joined up with his brother. Both of them were from Jamaica. And his brother was tragically killed in action in one of the famous battles. And But Norman did record his World War I uh, story and it was published in the Jamaica Journal, so it was, it was accessible. And so he was the one that I knew nothing about when I started. I knew the name, but I didn't know that he... Served in in British regiments, and and his story is as important as Walter Tolls so, and there were others like that. But I think Frank Dove and Norman Manley are the most intriguing. Norman was interesting because he was an Ox he was an Oxford student. Uh, he didn't graduate. I don't think he graduated, but he left to join up in 1914, and he joined a regiment at Deptford, and he was with what he described as white cockneys, these rough and ready white cockneys. And so he was a bit out of his depth because he's from a more of a sort of middle-class Jamaican sort of background. And they got on like a house on fire. They, they took care of him, they covered for him if he was sick, they did his guard duty for him. They were real comrades, he absolutely loved them. And he didn't like the term darkie that they used, but he realised it was a term of affection, it wasn't meant as a racist term. But they were very protective of him and he of them. It was a mutual thing. But it, he said the problems came when he was given promotion. And then when he was coming face to face with the white officer class, totally different attitude. They were really virulently racist and horrible to him. In fact, he he turned down a commission because he preferred to stay with, with the rank and file. Uh, so his experiences were very, very, very interesting. But again, he left a legacy. He left a short but very interesting and detailed uh, memoir uh, fragment of his first World War experiences. Others didn't. Like Frank Dove, I know very little about his World War I service other than he was, he was, again, British-born of an African father and an English mother, studied at Oxford and, and joined up in 1914 and... He was at the Battle of Cambrai in 1917 and he got the military medal. So they they were they were heroes. There was another soldier that intrigued me. Cleo Lane, the jazz singer, uh, spoke in her autobiography about her father, who was Jamaican, but joined up during the First World War and served in the First World War. And again, didn't know very much about his World War I service other than he had a good time and was, was accepted in the regiment he joined up. But his name, I, I did a bit of digging online, and on Ancestry you've got the World War I service records, and he's there, but under a different name. And I only found that out because he used two different names, and I knew that he'd used... So when I was checking Alexander Campbell, which is the name that Cleo... Lane gives for her father he's not actually registered in in the records as alexander campbell it's i think it's sylvan s y l a n Campbell and his service records are all that it all fits with the story that she told so it was it was wonderful to actually find the service records of world war one of 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 Cleo Lane's father and sort of add a little bit to that story
1: you've written before on the experience of black um servicemen in the second World war mm. do you see many parallels between? The two conflicts and how how they experienced them.
3: There certainly are parallels between the First World War motivations, if you like, of the black soldiers and the Second World War black black men and women that joined up. It was it was for some of them about independence, independence for their islands in the Caribbean, for their West African colonies. Uh, That was at the back of the minds of a lot of of black colonials. Some did join for glamour. I mean, the the parallels are very, very similar with the First and Second World War. Some would join for, for the glamour, to wear the uniform, to come to the mother country, to have an adventure, with no political views whatsoever. It was just excitement. I mean, when you're living in a colony and the white man is oppressing you, why not go to the mother country and join the army or the navy or, or or even the air force because we had we had the um, beginnings of the Royal Air Force in the First World War, but others joined for political reasons, which was independence decolonisation. But that came so much later, after the Second World War. There was a real fight and a real struggle for that to happen. But but it it, it there is this impression that some people have that the black men who joined the armed services in the first world war did it passively and were led by the hand by the white colonials that isn't true some came for adventure some came for political reasons they did have a political. in fact marcus garvey is on record in 1914 as saying join up he encouraged men in in the caribbean to join up because he was in jamaica then and was encouraging men to join up he said because then we've got we can prove that we're as good as the white man, and then we can prove that we are capable of running our own countries.
1: And you, you mentioned before that how there was they experienced some racism from, say, the officer class or the higher echelons of the British armed forces. Was there actually any bars to them doing certain things? Was there any, was there any kind of official segregation, or was it more unofficial but existed?
3: No, I I, I think. There was official rules and regulations about what a black soldier could and could not do. What I I was aware of before I wrote the book was that black men were not allowed to have... Black soldiers, for example, were not allowed to have guns because it was feared that they would turn around and shoot their white comrades and or it, or it would empower them to shoot colonials when after the war when they go back to the islands. It but then when you do the research, you you unc Walter Tull was given a gun, and so were some members of the British West Indies Regiment. But by and large, what black soldiers were expected to do, and this is the case, they were there to uh service the white soldiers in the sense that they were there on the front line to stack shells, do shell stacking, and those kinds of jobs. Well, then I discovered that, that actually shell stacking was an extremely dangerous, and 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 frightening job because you're on the front line. The Germans are shelling you, in, in, and and you're stacking shells, and it, it, it and it traumatized a lot of men, including um, Herbert Morris, who who sadly was so traumatized that he uh, absconded, and was court-martialed and shot at dawn. He was pardoned in 2006 with all the other soldiers that were pardoned. Uh, but it was, a, it was a very sad story. A Jamaican lad, aged 16. Could you imagine? And when I gave a talk recently to some uh, boys in uh, black boys in a youth centre near where I live, aged 8 to 14, I said to them, he was only two years older than the oldest one here. And they were really moved by that story.
1: And then back on the home front... What did the First World War mean for the black community that that didn't go to war, for the people that weren't fighting?
3: Well, on the home front, although, again, there's very little research and evidence, hard evidence, I just assumed that black women in the seaports were doing what other women were doing, working in munitions factories. There is evidence of some black and mixed-race women in Liverpool where some research by a wonderful historian called Ray Costello has unearthed a lot about the black Liverpool community, which goes right back into the 1800s, um, that were working in war factories. And I, when I when again, when I give talks to children, I just assume that my ado- adopted aunt Esther, who was born in 1912 and was at school... During the First World War, so it's roughly the sort of age of the children I talked to in primary schools, would have been doing what other girls were doing, which is being encouraged to to, to wrap bandages, to knit socks and balaclavas. Uh, children from all backgrounds would have been ex- would have been joining in the, the um, parades, with waving the Union Jack when the soldiers go off to march. So I just assumed that is what a little black girl like my aunt Esther would have been doing in London in the First World War, because why shouldn't she? I kind of take it from that point of view. I don't think black people would have been excluded if they'd wanted to do war work on the home front, they would have done it. And certainly from the evidence I found in the Second World War, that is true. So I assume it's true of the First World War. It's just that the community would have been much smaller, so it's harder to find the evidence.
1: And what would you like to see done to help make this side of the First World War more well-known?
3: What I would like to see done is f- I'd love to find a way of bringing schools to my book or bringing my book to the schools, because I think the book should be acknowledged in, if not the school curriculum, then certainly by history teachers up and down the country. But there's there's so much more needs to be done in order to address black British history, particularly this story during this period of, of, of the centenary uh, to get that, that information out there into the community, but particularly with young people, because young black people in this country should not just be taught about the African-Americans. I think it's damaging psychologically if they keep being told in schools that Dr Martin Luther King, as inspiring and important a figure as he is, is, is more important than... Some of the Black British um, figures. There, they're all there should be equality. There should be a way of of, of addressing that. And I, I haven't quite worked that out, but at least the book exists, and that, that that's a starting point.
1: That was Stephen Bourne. Black Poppies: Britain's Black Community and the Great War is out now, published by the History Press. And just before we go, I'd like to read out a couple of messages that have come in from readers to the podcast at historyextra.com email address. Firstly, here is Anne Lees from New Zealand. Anne writes, Just a note to you to let your authors who are interviewed on the podcast know that it is well worth speaking to you. I have just ordered five books after listening to a podcast. In one author's case, he was such a brilliant communicator that I have ordered his new one and two older books. I absolutely look forward to the magazine arriving, and read all of it thoroughly. But although reviews are wonderful, and I use them, they don't seem to have quite the power to enthuse you, the same way that listening to the author talking about his or her book does. Thanks for that, Anne. Also getting in touch was Cam, who lives in Singapore. Cam says, I love your podcast. It has been truly inspirational, and part of my weekend unwind routine, as I tidy around the house get extra work done and attend to my cats. More power to you and I wish you would feature stories on British, Spanish and Dutch colonisation in Asia. That would be most interesting. Well thank you for your message Cam and I'm sure that we will cover these topics at some point in the future. Well that is pretty much it for this week but do join us next time when we'll be talking about the Crusades among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes galleries, articles, and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
3: The Western world was asleep.